Rambam, Mishneh Torah, Hilchais Sanhedrin, the laws of the courts, court of 23, court of 71, the punishments that are handed over to their authority, Pedic Asidi, chapter 10. Echad minadayonim, one of the judges, bedin in a poshas in a capital case, who was of those who were arguing for not guilty. He was a defender, arguing for the defendant. Remember, we learned that the structure of a court of 23 is so there be a possibility of 10 of the 23 defending, 10 of the 23 prosecuting. And we also learned earlier that there has to be at least some people defending for the court to be a court. If there was one of the judges who were of the defense or of the prosecutors, why did he argue not guilty? Why did he argue guilty? Not because he feels guilty or not guilty. Not because logically he understands. Not because it makes sense to him Ella, because he knows that in this court there's a very smart guy. His name is Rabbi Moshe. Whatever Rabbi Moshe says is good enough for him. Ella, not He followed somebody else's opinion. That way he doesn't have to think. Doing that is actually a transgression of a negative commandment. Regarding this, it says, There's a verse, and he reinterprets the verse. Do not respond to a dispute with an inclination. Lintes would be here, an inclination. Don't say guilty or innocent because you're inclined to do so because you're copying somebody. From tradition, we learn, that at the time when they're counting votes, you should not say, it's good enough for me if I vote like this and this guy, because he's a smart guy. Say what you think. We need your opinion. We have a court of 23 because we want 23 people's opinion. We don't want copycats. There's a, a beautiful story in Hasidic tradition, <coughs> excuse me, that there was a Rebbe, a great Hasidic master who passed away, and his son filled his position and became the Rebbe. A few months later, a group of Hasidim, a group of disciples, came to this new young Rebbe, and they said, you know, Rebbe, you're not at all like your father. Your father did this, and you do this. Your father did this. You should become more like your father. Why are you trying to introduce new customs? So he said, you're missing the point. I am exactly like my father. My father did not mimic or copy anyone, and I don't mimic or copy anyone. And that's what Torah requires. Every judge should be an original thinker. Which is why we have learned and we will learn that they always ask 
the junior judges first for their opinions. Because they're afraid once the senior judge will express his opinion, the junior judges will be intimidated. And they won't want to disagree with them. We start from the bottom. We want originality and creativity. We want free thinking. Including in this negative commandment, the Torah is so interested in giving the defendant who's accused of a capital crime a fair trial. The Torah wants judges to argue in his defense. Once a judge presents an argument in his defense, we don't want that same judge presenting an argument to prosecute. Now again, I have to define what we're talking about here. In the American court system, we have defense attorneys who defend, and we have prosecutors who prosecute. The defense attorney gets up and speaks and speaks and speaks. The prosecutor gets up and speaks. He has an opening statement. He, has, he presents the closing statement. They just talk and talk. In a Jewish court, all of this is done by judges. Once a judge has stood up and did and given an argument to defend, we don't want that same judge to prosecute. It would be like in the American system of court of law if the defense attorney suddenly becomes a prosecutor. That's a problem. It's enough we have a prosecutor. Let the defense attorney defend if he has something intelligent to say. So also this judge who began with an argument of defense, which is a good thing, let him not switch Horses in midstream. Now, again, we said this earlier, it doesn't mean that at the end when they take the vote, he cannot vote his conscience. If he argued to defend, in the end he can vote guilty, no problem. But that's not in the process, it's in the end. <clears throat> Do not respond to a dispute with an inclination. Suddenly you're inclined to another argument. Now he clearly says this, when does this law apply? At the debate stage. But at the final stage, where they take the vote of every judge, if that's his conscience, then even somebody who argued to exonerate earlier can convict. Gimel, interesting law. Talmud. We learned, and we will learn, that the system is that there are 23 judges, and then they have another 23 judges, another 23 people who are disciples, and another 23 people sitting around in a horseshoe. These are called disciples. If there's a disciple who has something intelligent to say, he's welcome to step up to the podium and speak. Talmud, if there was a disciple, and, and then what did they do? He becomes part of that court. They add him to the court. It's not easy to become a disciple. And therefore, some say that they have to add two to the court. Otherwise, it would be an even court. What if this disciple was arguing for exoneration? And suddenly he dies. He gets a heart attack. He dies. 
we assume that he's alive and we advocate his position so we count his vote why again these are all laws to add to the defense of the defendant if one guy says yes I have an argument for defense finished take and suddenly he lost his ability to speak God forbid he suffered a stroke or what have you he became mute a mace or he died before he expresses his idea and before he expressed the logic behind his inclination to defend this guy we don't count why because he never expressed his logic we don't take it on faith Torah is logic what if two students or he says here perhaps two judges argue one rationale I feel a Mishnah Christ, even if they're basing it upon two texts. They are only counted as one. Because the Torah has one law that comes from one text. So basically, we don't want copy, uh, copycat arguments. I do not believe that this applies to the final vote. I think in the final vote, everybody has a right to vote. I believe. And here he says what I pointed out earlier. From tradition we learn, that in capital matters, you do not start from the senior members of the Sanhedrin. Perhaps, every, imagine, Moshe Rabbeinu is sitting on the Sanhedrin, Moses himself, and he issues his opinion. Who's going to disagree with Moses? Therefore, we have Moses issue his opinion last. Perhaps everyone else will rely on his opinion. And they will not find themselves worthy to debate him. Everyone will say something which appears to him, and that's why you start from the minor member of the Sanhedrin first so also you never begin in a capital matter with an argument for prosecution always you begin with defense and I believe that in the Western system it's not so the prosecution always opens up in the Jewish system the defense meaning a judge for the defense should open up. Ketzad, for example, what's an example of opening up for the defense? We speak in terms of innocence. We talk to the guy, we tell the guy who sinned, we talk to the accused and tell him, if you didn't do this and this thing, do not be afraid of their words if you're innocent you have nothing to fear I've shared this many times many years ago when I was about to sign a mortgage on one of the Chabad properties the bank after months of negotiation and so on and so forth the banker put before me a stack of documents that were probably a hundred pages 
And he said, sign here. So I said, uh, I'm, I'm happy to sign. Thank you very much. But do I have to know what it says here? Do I have to read it? He says, well, that's up to you. But uh, he says, not really. If you're going to make your payments on time, I assure you, nothing it says here will hurt you. If you don't, I assure you, nothing it says here will help you. So, well, you know, what's the purpose in reading it? They tell him, if you're innocent, don't worry about all this procedure. Nothing's going to hurt you. That's a way of beginning with an argument for innocence. What if, in a case of capital law, one of the students says, Yeshli I have an argument for prosecution. He's not a member of the Sanhedrin, he's just a student sitting around. say we silence him. We're not looking for prosecution from the disciples. Omar, if he said, Yeshli I have a defense argument. They promote him to the Sanhedrin to participate in the debate. If he has substance, they hear him out. And he never descends back down. I feel, uh, any other Misham, I'm sorry. If he has no substance, he stays there for the rest of the day. Furthermore, even if the defendant himself says, I have an argument for my defense. We hear him. Now here in some Rambams it says, he's counted as one of the judges. Obviously, as the Lecha Mishnah points out, that's a mistake. You never count the defendant as a judge. You just allow him to express his opinion. As long as there is substance in what he says, you let him express himself. You know, in Western law, there's always the big question. Is the defendant going to testify in, in a criminal case? Why? Because no one can be forced to testify in Western law. In Jewish law also, a defendant cannot be forced to testify. But if the guy says, hey, I want to make an argument on my defense, as they say in Russian, Pujalistov, go right ahead. Tess, the closing paragraph in chapter 10. What if the courts made an error in a capital case? They made a mistake. They're only human. Again, we're talking about a court of 23 or a court of 71. That's a lot of members to make a mistake. And they found the defendant who should be declared not guilty by law. They found him innocent. They made an error in the law. In, in the Western world, this would be a very good case for an appeal. And they found him guilty. And they found a good reason to contradict the ruling, the judgment, and to now 
find him innocent, Sayyidim, they contradict, because a huge error was made. Why? Because it's obvious, an obvious error. And they retry him. So they call a mistrial and a retrial. Avalim told, but if their error was, and they found not guilty someone who should be guilty. You do not contradict the ruling. You don't bring him back. In the Western world, this is called double jeopardy. You don't try a guy twice if you found him innocent once. When does the supply? Here the Rambam is going to use a point of reference which has to do with a group of people who are known as the Tzidukim, the Sodusis. And we learned extensively about them and other laws in the Rambam. They were a very sometimes popular and substantial group of Jews who denied the oral law and admitted to the written law and had another version of Judaism. And there were some times in history when they caused a lot of heartache for the Jewish people, the Sadducees they were called. Basically, they denied the validity of the oral law. They only accepted the written law. So, if the error was in something that even the Sadducees would agree with, that's a pretty big error, then we just reverse it. If the mistake was, I'm sorry, I said that backwards. If the mistake was in an argument that the Sadducees would not agree with, then that's something we don't reverse. But if the error is in something that even the Sadducees agree with, that's a big error. They cause him to come back and retry him even for guilt. So here's a case where because of the huge legal error made, they do try the fellow a second time. And here the Rambam gives an example. Ketzad, for example. Now, in order to understand the example, in Torah law, we have learned about it, and we will learn about it. When speaking about the prohibitions against forbidden intimacies, forbidden relationships of intimacy, there is a plural term used in the Torah, and that is mishkevei isha, plural. Acts of intimacy, plural. That's used in Vayikra, Leviticus, indicating that in general, when we talk about intercourse, which is the act that is required in order for a death penalty to be able to be applied in any type of biblical intimacy prohibition, there are two types of intercourse. There is what we call, and I'll use the, the modest interpretation, there is what we call normal intercourse and abnormal intercourse. 
So by Torah law, even abnormal intercourse is called intercourse, and therefore there can be capital punishment. Ketzad, for example, what was the error of this Sanhedrin? Omru, if they erroneously said that habo alo erva, that if somebody engages in an act of intimacy, shalaykadarka, in an abnormal manner, in an unusual manner, potter is exempt. That's a mistake. Because we just talked about the fact that there are two types of intimacies by Torah law. And they're both culpable. They're both liable. Uftaruhu, so in the case of this court, the court exempted him, and they made a big mistake. They were ignorant. They bring him back to trial. And they can even put him to death if all the procedures work as they should. But if their mistake was a much lighter, much more liberal mistake, if they said, that just the very beginning of intercourse in an abnormal intimacy, Potter is exempt. We're not talking about a full penetration, but just the very beginning, and they exempted him for this. This is not a normal intercourse. This point is not accepted by the Sadducees. You don't bring him back to court. This is an example. Anything similar to this, if there is an obvious error in, biblic in even biblical law, where even the Sadducees would agree, there could be a retrial, and we don't worry about what we call in our world double jeopardy. But if it's a fine line of law, where the Sadducees would not accept it because it's rabbinic interpretation, then, although we want to follow truth, justice, and the American way, nevertheless, we do not want to expose this fellow to a, re a retrial or double jeopardy. End of chapter 10.